Welcome to the Balanced Black Girl Podcast. We're putting black girl magic in motion. This show is dedicated to reinventing wellness for women of color. I'm your host, Lestrandra Alfred. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of Balanced Black Girl Podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you are a returning listener, welcome back. And I am honored to have you here listening yet again. So currently it's about mid-December. At least we're coming up on mid-December and the holiday season is in full swing. The holidays can be a really, really tricky time. Whether you have a lot of financial strain and it can be really hard to keep up with the demands that the holiday season can have or feel pressured to buy gifts or presents, or maybe you have a challenging family dynamic and either get really stressed going back home for the holidays or maybe don't have anywhere to go. It can be a really, really challenging time. And I know for me, I'm having kind of an interesting relationship with the holidays. Again, last year, the holidays were really challenging for me because my grandmother passed away in mid-November of 2018, which was right before Thanksgiving. And so the holidays thereafter were just kind of lackluster. None of us were really feeling it. None of us were really feeling celebratory. It just didn't feel festive. We were all very much grieving in my family. And this year feels similar in some ways, like still not really feeling the holidays. Thanksgiving was pretty hard for me personally, just because last year that was kind of when everything was happening. I just really found myself wanting to lay low and kind of hibernate and not do the normal holiday festivity things. And this year is actually a little bit interesting because it's going to be my first time not being in the Pacific Northwest. So I am going to be traveling back shortly before Christmas, but am going to largely be spending time away from family. I also was not home for Thanksgiving. And so it's just really, really interesting to kind of navigate either having different feelings about the holidays than maybe you grew up with or creating new traditions, or maybe if with your upbringing, the holidays were hard and you are navigating through that, just know that you are not alone. And I really, really want to encourage you to spend some time taking care of you. So the days are really short. There are a lot of events. There are a lot of things happening. It can feel really, really stressful to do all the things and feel like you can still take care of yourself. I know also this time of year can be really tricky when it comes to food and when it comes to body image, because there's lots of food, there's lots of treats, there's all of the things. And so there can be a lot of guilt around that. And even though I don't necessarily know everyone's unique situation, I just want to encourage each and every one of you to just take a step back and opt out of things if you need to and really focus on taking care of yourself. And even if this time of year, maybe you can't be on your exercise game or with it being winter, it's harder to get outside. I really, really encourage you to try to implement at least a few really low maintenance self-care practices that can really help you stay 
grounded and centered during this season. So I know for me, my meditation game has probably been stronger than ever. I know I really like using either the Calm app. Also, the Liberate app is another great one that is POC focused. So those are really helpful for guided meditations. And I'll have those linked in the show notes if you're interested in checking them out. And also journaling has been a really big just non-negotiable for me. So I really like the five-minute journal is a really great one. We had a previous guest on the show, Michelle White, who is a social worker and self-care expert. She has an incredible journal called Self-Explore, Self-Restore. So that is a really, really great one to check out if you haven't already. And then also, if you are a Michelle Obama fan or if you read Becoming, she also just came out with the Becoming journal, which I have a copy of. And I haven't started writing in it yet because I want to finish up my current five-minute journal. But the prompts are really, really wonderful. And I will also link that in the show notes if you're interested or in the market for some new journals. The Five Minute Journal, Self Explore, Self Restore, and the Becoming Journal are all some great options. They're things that don't take a lot of time, but can just really help you release feelings of stress and better express yourself during this stressful time of year. So I really, really encourage you to whatever it is, if it's a meditation practice, if it's journaling, if it's a daily walk, if it is just waking up five minutes earlier to have a moment of peace and just breathing while you drink your morning coffee, whatever it is, I really, really encourage you to make every effort you can to really keep yourself as centered as possible. I'm giving you a virtual hug <laughs> through the headphones right now because I I feel for you. This time of year can be really, really tricky. So all of that aside, let's jump in to today's interview, which was such a fun conversation. And this is for my travelers out there, or maybe if you were interested in doing more traveling, this conversation is for you. And travel is something that is near and dear to my heart. It is something that I, this year in 2019, started doing a lot more of, and honestly did more travel and saw more new places than ever. I have such a complicated relationship with travel because in a lot of ways travel can be something that feels very privileged and that is why as an adult I'm just now starting to go to so many places because I didn't grow up in a family where we necessarily had the means to go all these different places and do all of these different things however I do think that travel can be a really beautiful thing if it is something that you are able to make work to gain different perspectives and to really enrich the human experience just getting to see different places and have different experiences with different cultures so today's conversation really Really revolves around that. Our guest today is Sojourner White. Sojourner is a traveling scholar whose experiences as a Fulbright Fellow in Spain and service here as a public ally with AmeriCorps led her to become an international social worker. Born and raised in Milwaukee, her travel journey started in the U.S. with her family. However, studying Spanish opened her eyes to the world of international travel. Since studying abroad in 2015, she's traveled from Mexico to Morocco and many European countries in between. Sojourner is living up to her name all while pursuing her master's degree and writing her way through the world on her blog, Sojourner. She offers tips and resources to other students, professionals, or anyone interested in making travel part of their lives too. 
Her adventures have shaped her views of blackness, womanhood, and wellness, no matter where she may be in the world. So I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. I just, I loved talking to Sojourner so much. She has had so many incredible experiences and such a unique perspective. She is so just open and and willing to share and talk about things that may be vulnerable or tricky. And I learned so, so much from this conversation. And I know that you will enjoy hearing from her as much as I enjoyed talking to her. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Sojourner, thank you so much for joining us today. You are most certainly Black Girl Magic in motion, and I am so excited for my audience to get to know you better. Can you tell us your backstory, where you are from, and how you got to where you are today? Thank you for having me. I listen to the podcast, obviously, so I'm really excited to talk to you. So I'm my name is Sojourner, originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin but currently living in St. Louis, Missouri, getting my master's of social work. But before all of that, I grew up born and raised in Milwaukee. I come from a family, a really big family of seven siblings. So I grew up with a big family and we always traveled a lot. I'm originally from Milwaukee. My dad is from St. Louis and my mom is from Pittsburgh. So we were always on the road for road trips, just seeing family or going on vacation. And my stepdad's family is originally from Louisiana, so we would go down there too. So all of those experiences as a child kind of led me into social work and especially the international part. I started learning Spanish in the sixth grade, and that was my first real introduction to the international world, I guess, because I hadn't really thought too much about traveling before then. But once you start learning a language, you want to start using the language. Mm-hmm. Um, so for college, I so I had studied it all throughout high school too. Was I went through the international baccalaureate or IB program, which is pretty intense college prep program, and I learned Spanish through there too. But I was pretty much stagnant after that, and so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna either major in Spanish in college or I'm dropping this major. It was one or the other, and I decided to to pursue it, and that's what led me to go to. Spain for the first time or to leave the country for the first time. I studied abroad in Granada, which is in the southern part of Spain. Beautiful area if you ever get the chance to visit. It is quite stunning. And from there, that was the travel bug internationally. And I had no intention of going to Spain. I just wanted to study Spanish somewhere in the world. And from there, I loved it. Applied for the Fulbright fellowship, went to teach in Spain with Fulbright after graduation, went back to Milwaukee, did AmeriCorps, and a mix of AmeriCorps and Fulbright kind of led me to international social work. Incredible. There are so many areas of your story that I'm so excited to dive into. First off, the fact that you started learning Spanish in sixth grade, I think is such an amazing thing to just have exposure to another language and and to another culture so young. I'm curious, what was either the biggest lesson you learned during your study abroad experience or something that you experienced while you were in Spain that has really stuck with you? Ooh, I think for me, one of the biggest things I learned, it's definitely transfer over was how big the world is yeah like you know there are other places in the world 
But until you actually go and see other places in the world, it really puts it, it puts it into context. So once I got to Spain and I had, so when I say I want to study Spanish, I didn't, I never intended to go to Spain. I had teachers from Latin America growing up. So I always envisioned myself going to Latin America. But when I applied for a program or while I was looking at colleges, I didn't really think about that. I assumed everyone had programs everywhere. I didn't really know about study abroad. And that's how I ended up in Spain because they only had programs there, my undergrad. That alone is like the world is big and you have no idea where you're headed. It's probably one of the biggest lessons I learned while in Spain. And then as far as like being a black woman, that's when I was introduced to like Afro Spaniards and all of this history that I hadn't learned in school. Like we learned U.S. history and, you know, World War II and other parts about the U.S., but it was also impactful because I was exposed to more of like the diaspora and where we've been throughout history. And it really just all opened my eyes to show the world is a lot bigger than even I realize physically, but also historically and how we're all connected. That is such a good perspective. That's, I think, a good reminder for everybody because it can be so easy to operate from where we currently stand. And obviously in life, everybody has things that are going on. Everybody has situations, obstacles, exciting things, but it can be really, really hard to sometimes just see what's right outside of that or what's going on in the world around you. And that sounds like a really incredible perspective that you were able to gain. It really has shaped a lot of a lot of how I view the world and I always say, like, I don't know how I became a social worker, but the more you think <laughs> about your story, the more stuff starts to click yeah, and starts to make sense. And it's like, oh, I did that while I was there. So that's the reason why I decided to pursue this career path and the international part obviously was a big impact as well. Yeah, it sounds like it all aligned really, really well. So we actually do have quite a few young listeners of the show who are college age. I'm curious if there is someone listening to the show who is interested in studying abroad, but isn't quite sure where to start or what resources to look to to prepare. What do you recommend for them? I would say, first off, Google is one of the best things to ever come out of the Internet. (laughs) I went down a wormhole when I was applying because I wasn't really... I didn't know about travel blogging and all that stuff when I was studying abroad. So I was just Googling opportunities. So I would say definitely if you're thinking about, you know, the whole study abroad world. First, if you are in college and if you have an office that's dedicated to international programs or global programs or study abroad in general, start there. See what your options are. And if they aren't there, there are other bigger international education organizations that have programs. So like CIEE is a really popular one. IES is another popular one. They have semester at sea where you can study abroad on a cruise ship pretty much for a whole semester. Just reaching out, Googling different programs is definitely where I started. And even now there are more databases that are geared towards students looking for scholarships and fellowships like profellow.com too and go abroad or go overseas are just a few options if people are interested in pursuing these experiences because they're out there and they're even more funded now than they were when I was studying abroad about four years ago. Uh, So that's definitely where I would say 
you should you should start. And then from there, you can find also the, the Benjamin Gilman Scholarship, which is like a fully funded study abroad experience. That is incredible. I'm taking copious notes so that we can include that in the show notes because that's a great resource. I mean, I know it, for me, studying abroad was not something that I got to do in college and I'm I'm a couple years older than you. So I think back then there was even less resources available on the web and, and scholarships available, which was definitely a big hurdle in, in my journey when I was thinking about it. But I think the more resources we can share with other folks so they maybe feel empowered to make that choice if it's right for them is really, really exciting. Yeah, and there are even programs and opportunities available for people who aren't in school too. Like ProFellow is one that has a whole database of just fellowships in general. So you don't have to be a student for some of them. So there are definitely other opportunities out there if you just want to take a different class. I know there's a class called Black in Amsterdam where it's like a week or two in Amsterdam sponsored by one of the Black Heritage Tours, I believe. And they have a program where you just go and learn about Black history in Amsterdam for like a week and you don't have to be a student or anything. So there are other opportunities too for people who are looking for international learning but aren't necessarily students. Love that. Lifelong learning is key. That's incredible. So I'm curious, why do you think Black women in particular can benefit from embarking on international travel? I think as Black women, we, first of all, we're amazing. (laughs) Yes. um, But also, we have a very nuanced perspective. I like to think that we're we're very self-aware. And so traveling enhances that but also gives us even more freedom to explore who we are outside of certain contexts. I remember when I got back and just, I was a very different person and how I viewed myself as a black woman had changed the first time I studied abroad because I saw like other black women traveling. There weren't a whole lot of us in Spain in particular because it's pretty homogenous, but just going to other countries, like I went to Portugal and Italy and Morocco and England, like when I first studied abroad. And then when I was teaching with Fulbright, I went to like Greece and Germany and all over Europe. And just being a Black woman in those spaces is so unique and so powerful because we're able to connect with Black women, other Black women across the world, like literally. It takes a very special person or a group of people to be able to have those types of connections. Like I would see a Black woman with her natural hair. And even if we didn't necessarily speak the same language, I would motion to her hair and she knew like what I was talking about. Yes. And so just having those connections is really impactful and it makes you even more comfortable in your Blackness and your womanhood and your identity. And it's beautiful. I've, I've had a lot of random conversations in cafes with Black women. I was in Amsterdam and I joined the Amsterdam Black Women Group for, for one of their brunches, you know, and the way we're able to organize around the world is beautiful. There was a video when Before I Let Go came out of Black women in South Korea dancing to it in the middle of South Korea, you know, like it was in like Seoul. And so the way we're able to spread our magic is something really special. 
and all of the different travel groups like Black Girls Travel Too that has come out of the travel movement just so that we're we're everywhere and we can literally be everywhere and you know and, and do what we want. So I think it's beautiful. Oh, that is beautiful. I love I love that you said the way that we're able to spread our magic everywhere because that really is what it is and it just is a really beautiful beautiful experience. So I'm curious for you as a seasoned traveler who has studied abroad, taught abroad, what are some of your best travel tips for black women and, you know, this could range from anything from budgeting to taking care of natural hair abroad for the the natural sisters to maybe even navigating things like language barriers. Yes, I would say hair care is number one. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something that I worried about when I first went went abroad and I wrote a whole blog post on it too just like a a little packing list but I would say for hair come with your protective style already wear it on the plane wear your marley twist your box braid your wig whatever wear one of them with you because in some places you just never know what's going to be available and in Europe, it's a little more accessible. In big cities in general, there's normally more options for black hair care, but it wasn't in Madrid. So definitely yeah. bringing your supplies with you, you know, packing in bulk. It may be a little heavy, but, you know, at least you'll have what you need because hair care is important. <laughs> better to be prepared. <laughs> yes, better to be prepared than worry about paying a lot in shipping from like Amazon, from like England or something. Uh, So that's number one. I would say number two, one app that I love is I like to be organized at least a little bit to have an idea of what I'm doing. So I use Google Maps for literally everything. I make lists of places I want to go in certain locations. You can star them. And even if you don't have Wi-Fi, you can still look at the star locations and see where you're going in a different location. So Google Maps is my everything. Uh, I talk about it all the time with my friends and family because I don't know what I would do if I did not have that app. I don't know how people got around before. I don't know either. Like, (laughs) I use physical maps sometimes, like the really touristy ones that put all the monuments everywhere. (laughs) And those are the ones that I would use if I didn't have Google Maps. And then I would say the third thing is definitely utilize like Facebook groups. I know some people may not be on Facebook, but honestly, I've connected with so many people through Facebook or to- or Twitter or in social media in general. But if you join Facebook groups, uh, like She Travels the Globe is a great one. I mentioned earlier, Amsterdam Black Women or any Facebook group that is geared towards Black women, like the one for Spain is called Morenas Bellas, I think. And so there are just, there are Facebook groups in multiple locations for Black women. So if you're ever looking to connect with people, um, definitely join those. Say, hey, like I'll be in XYZ for however many days. I would love to meet up. And there's a very high possibility that someone who's either from there or lived there for a long period of time will be willing to, to go hang out with you for a little bit or go out to lunch or something like that. And from there, you can get really good tips on what to do, where to go, where to eat is very important to me. So for sure, definitely utilizing those connections too. That's something I use Facebook groups for all the time. And from there, you can get all types of things from budgeting tips to where you should stay. 
Amazing. Those are some great pro tips. We'll make sure we have all of those resources linked in the show notes, your hair care blog post, as well as uh, some of those Facebook groups that you mentioned, because those are incredible, incredible resources. And I do have to ask, have you ever experienced any sort of like discrimination or challenges of that nature abroad? And if so, what was that experience like? Yeah, so abroad is when you talked about how has, you know, travel and shape me as a black woman when it comes to race and ethnicity, Mm -hmm. especially, it's a different world out there because the U.S. contextualizes race one way. And it's not to say there isn't racism in other countries because there is. It's just race and ethnicity is a very blurred line. And I think for me, I haven't had too many necessarily bad experiences. I have the experience of people trying to argue with me about where I'm from, hmm. which is not an issue that I have in the US. Yeah. I'll say, oh, like they're like, oh, where are you from? I'm like, oh, I'm from, you know, United States, from Wisconsin. They're like, no, 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 no. Where are you from originally? Like, you know, what part of Africa are you from? And I had never got that question. Yeah. And it happened to me when I studied abroad in Granada. And then it happened a few more times when I was teaching and particularly in Europe. So a lot of my experiences have been in Europe. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these questions I got, I got in Europe. And so it's like, I don't honestly, I'm like, is that discrimination? Is that just people not knowing their like history and like the transatlantic slave trade was yeah. a global, global phenomenon, like colonization was a global thing. And so for me, it's been those instances of when I blur that line of, okay, do I really want to get into this? You know, also, do I really want to get into this in Spanish? Yeah. (laughs) I don't think I have the vocabulary to accurately describe this to you. And so, yeah, it's a complicated thing. I thankfully haven't had too many like life-threatening type of experiences as a Black woman abroad, but it's that education piece, which is all about emotional labor. And when I was teaching in Fulbright, the N-word did come up in one of my classes and I had to address it in class. And thankfully I had a a co-teacher who was able to translate for me because in that moment, like I was, you know, with a lot of emotions going on, I knew how I could explain it in Spanish, but I didn't have the full vocabulary to do it. So it was nice to have that support. But those experiences in particular are emotionally taxing. And those are the ones that I think of the most when I think about, you know, discrimination or being black and abroad is how do you how do you explain to someone the African slave trade? How do you explain to someone what their continent did? Mm -hmm. And it's about choosing whether or not to engage and also trying to gauge where they're coming from. Like, is it are they curious about it? Or are they just trying to mess with me? It's layered. It's so layered. That is so layered. And I think, I mean, for so many of us who are Black Americans in the U.S. who are descendants of slaves, you know, we don't necessarily have that privilege of knowing where we come from or knowing where our family comes from. And that is something that is, I think, in our culture, not an unspoken thing, but you're very rarely going to have someone ask you that. So then to have that happening in the places where a lot of these, you know, colonizers originated from with a language barrier does sound like a very, very layered, complicated situation to navigate. Yeah, it is. And it's even when it comes to language and terminology. And I've talked about it with a lot of my friends who are Black and have traveled outside the U.S. is the term African-American versus Black American Mm -hmm. and how you get different responses 
based off what you say. So if I were to tell someone I was Black American, I really wouldn't get the what part of Africa are you from question as often. Like it, uh. it might still happen. But when they hear the word Africa, they expect you to have a country attached to it. Interesting. So it's not Which interchangeable never, like it is for us here. No. Yeah, no, not to them. To me, it's interchangeable. Like I'll yeah. answer to either one. Yeah. But there are people who I know now who identify more as Black American because of the experiences they've had traveling. Mm -hmm. So it's like, how do we even, like when it comes to terminology around race and ethnicity, because it's really an ethnicity issue when you go abroad because they don't, they think American is one thing. Yeah. Like, but there are so many layers to being American and what does that look like and how we talk about ourselves and how we express ourselves outside the U.S. I think that's also one thing that has changed for me is how important language is and how that affects how we move through the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. How has your, I guess, perspective on language shifted since having those experiences? I wish the U.S. emphasized foreign languages to start off, because even even knowing Spanish, I'm pretty fluent now after being in Spain for about a year and a half. But even so, like, to connect with Black people in Europe, French was actually the language I probably should have learned. Interesting. Um, yeah, a lot of people, when I was in Berlin this summer, a lot of people would approach me speaking French, and they were Black, and I would shake my head no, and they would say, you know, Deutsch, like German? I'm like, no, they're like, English? And I would shake my head, yeah, and they were like, oh, no English, no English. Oh. So it was, yeah, so even to connect with other Black people in Europe, it's like that opened my eyes to how big the French influence and their colonization was on Black populations, particularly around Africa as well. And then just the importance of language and how you can even, even how language is not always spoken. Part of the work that I was doing in Berlin was around work for development and pursuing girls and refugees in sports and how sport and doing primarily football or soccer is a language for people to be integrated into communities. So even so, you know, spoken language isn't always how people are able to connect with each other. We visited as a class when I was in Berlin this summer, we visited a, a nonprofit that does work with a, like a sports program for for refugees to be more integrated into German society. And a lot of them did not speak the same language through their mouths, but through their bodies and playing soccer, you know, they were able to connect with each other and built friendships through that. So it's even expanded how I view language and what language I value. It's like, yeah, I may not be able to speak the language, but there's body language and even that common language of knowing a sport. Yeah. Oh, I love that because I think that also makes building community with people who are different than you that much more accessible for everyone involved. Love it. Taking a quick pause from our conversation with Sojourner to talk about holiday snacking. So right now we are fully amidst the holiday season and there are some flavors that just scream holidays to me. And the main one I'm thinking of is peppermint and white chocolate. You've heard me talk about it before, but the white chocolate peppermint skinny dipped almonds are 
like my obsession this season. I cannot get enough. They've been an amazing snack to take on the go or just whenever I need a little pick me up after dinner or maybe when I'm working in the afternoon and don't really want to drink coffee, have a little sweet tooth. They are crunchy organic almonds covered in white chocolate and peppermint with a little dusting of powdered sugar. They are delicious. It's literally like your favorite childhood peppermint bark in chocolate covered almond form and I can't get enough and I will continue talking about them (laughs) until the season ends stocking up right now because I will be so sad when the holidays are over and I can't get my hands on them anymore. So if you want to try them out, you can head to skinnydipped.com and you can use the code BBG for 15% off your order of skinny dipped almonds. So I am also curious, how do you practice self-care while traveling? Travel used to be just my general form of self-care when I first started. Yeah. And now that it's integrated into my work, I'm currently reworking how that is going to look. You know, even after graduation, when I'm looking, you know, to expand and really pursue being international social worker on that level, I think for me, self-care while I'm traveling is a good meal. I love trying new foods. I am pescatarian, so I try new foods within that limit. But just going out on my own and exploring on my own and having that time to myself while I'm traveling is really important. Whether I'm going to the park by myself and just people watching or I'm going out to eat by myself or even like self-care while I'm traveling can be taking a cooking class or doing something on my own. Like I need that time away. You know, if I'm by myself, that's fine. But also, you know how... As a solo traveler, too, I've done that a little bit. I'm always meeting more people when I solo travel than when I travel with other people. Mm-hmm. So so even with the new people saying, all right, you know, this was cool, but I'm going to head back, <laughs> you know, and, and not being afraid to do that because yeah. I do need my, my personal time and I need that time to relax and write down everything that I'm feeling and that's going on because I can do it later, but it won't have the same effect. Um, I've been writing in a journal since I was like six. So I have tons of journals of just where I've been and what I've done. And that's a really important part of self-care that I like to do alone as I travel. That's so good. Journaling, I think, is just one of the most therapeutic and impactful forms of self-care that sometimes doesn't get enough love because it's not as sexy as other forms of self-care. But it is something that is just so accessible and can make such a big difference in your perspective, your mindset. And I also really appreciated how you started that off with saying travel used to feel different, that it was self-care for you back when it was something that was a bit more recreational. And now that it's a part of your job, you're kind of reworking what that relationship looks like. I think even not even necessarily using the example for travel, but that's relatable for so many people when they love doing something one way, but maybe turn it into work or maybe attach a bit more responsibility to it, have to reevaluate their relationship with it. So I appreciate that you said that. Because I think we're, we're always evolving and we're always trying to figure out what does balance, what does self-care mean for us in this yeah. moment? Because what was self-care for me during my first year of grad school last year 
is very different from what is self-care for me right now. And so just recognizing that and figuring out, you know, what works and taking the time to figure it out, which I think a lot of us, myself included, struggle with is finding, okay, this is the self-care that works for me. So let's do this. Let's commit to this. It's also really, really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kind of on that note, I would love to to bring it back to the states because we've uh, <laughs> we've talked about the international. Love to bring it back to the states a little bit and talk about your time in AmeriCorps. So mm-hmm. you served in AmeriCorps. Can you tell us more about that experience? Where you taught? What that was like for you, and how that also shaped your identity as a Black woman. So I decided to do AmeriCorps after being in Spain for the year. I wrestled with, do I stay? Do I go? And it would have been so easy and convenient to stay, but I felt like teaching English abroad wasn't necessarily my my calling or my passion. So I wanted time to figure out what that would be. And I wanted to go home. I hadn't lived at home since I left when I was 17 going to college. So I used that time in AmeriCorps to go home. I did their program, Public Allies, which is most famous now because Michelle Obama was in charge of the one in Chicago. Um, And I believe she started it, if I'm not mistaken. But I did the one in Milwaukee. And so with that, I was actually placed at at one organization. So the way Public Allies works is that we have nonprofit placements throughout the week like four days out the week in Milwaukee. And then on that Friday, we all come together to talk about our experiences, to have trainings on like racism and heterosexism and ableism and sexism and all the isms you could possibly (laughs) think of. And so with that experience, I actually was placed at one location, had to leave there due to their financial um, difficulties and then ended up working at Girl Scouts, which actually turned out to be a really good fit. I was there four days a week. I was actually in two of my former schools, my former elementary and middle school, doing the Girl Scout curriculum, being a troop leader there. So we had stuff around healthy eating habits. I found a way to incorporate international currencies in our curriculum just to show the girls, you know, here we use the U.S. dollar, but in these locations we use, you know, this and that. And I actually had a lot of girls on the South side who were from Latin America. So Mm -hmm. I had a few who were from Mexico and Panama. And so I made sure to include their local currencies because they recognized them, you know, when I had it just to show, you know, a little, a little broader international context to bring, to bring to my troops. And then of course the Girl Scout cookie season and the (laughs) entrepreneurship part of that and seeing them, sell their cookies. That was really cool. It was a lot. It reminded me of being in my own rite of passage programming in Milwaukee because that's what my mom did a lot growing up. So my friends and I were all in rite of passage programming together. That's where we learned about periods and the menstrual cycle and your body is your temple and all of these affirmations that we went through throughout more later elementary school and middle school. So that time in AmeriCorps really brought me back to my own childhood in Milwaukee and being in public allies and learning about Milwaukee through the lens of an adult who was starting really her social work career and dissecting what that was like. And then even within the program in those trainings, my own power and privileges and oppression and what I had faced and working through all of that was a really inspiring year and definitely put me on the path to 
to where I am now and where I'm headed. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a really rewarding experience with some good kind of full circle moments. Yeah, it definitely was too, because my mom works in urban agriculture and food justice in Milwaukee. And my stepdad works in workforce development. And my dad taught in Milwaukee public schools for 30 something years. So it made my social work path more clear because I always thought like, oh, I don't know how I became a social worker entire childhood (laughs) and seeing my mom like lead these sessions. And she runs a two acre urban farm in Milwaukee called Alice's Garden and seeing the programming like healthy moms, healthy kids and brown boys bonding through books and all of these social work type things that I was seeing as a child and bringing it all full circle in Milwaukee that year. I think I realized now it was more emotionally like a lot for me. I didn't know where I would be, you know, now, like I was applying to grad school. I had no idea what school I would end up in. And so it definitely shaped how I end up in my current program and also made me really appreciative of the foundation I had back home and the people my parents surrounded me with growing up. And yeah, it was, it was just a lot. I I still think about how much that year actually was was for me as far as like growing into like a young adult and young professional, even though it was only a year, so much can happen in one year. And so much did happen that year. Oh, for sure. It sounds like an incredibly formative year and your whole life and your whole perspective can change in a year. But it sounds like you in that year got a lot of really, really valuable perspective and alignment, which is really beautiful. Alignment is definitely the word. (laughs) That's all I could think of while you were while you were telling that story. Yeah, because you you don't know how things are aligning until they do. You're like, yep. oh, that's why that happened. You yeah. know, that's why I felt the urge to come home. This was putting me on the path to, you know, become a social worker and taking what my parents had still to me. You know, it takes a village to raise a child. And I definitely had a whole village growing up. And to be able to be a little piece of that for other people in my own hometown was yeah it was it was the year I didn't know I needed until I got it yeah Uh, which is I think how a lot of things things work so if anybody's listening has a public allies near them it's definitely one of those programs that that makes you think I love that beautiful beautiful so now that you are in graduate school uh, studying to become a social worker, I'm curious how your practices around wellness have changed in that environment. You know, grad school is a lot of work. It's very demanding. So how do you still take care of you? To be honest, it's not it's not a place that has a lot of balance yeah. or a lot of healthy self-care practices. And it's been a struggle like some weeks. But for me, I definitely have, and this was actually started a lot when I was in AmeriCorps, but boundaries are my best friend. Talk about them. (laughs) Yes. And telling people no is a form of self-care. And that is absolutely fine because I think grad school taught me you can't do everything. I was balancing a lot in undergrad and I wanted to be involved in all these different things, but grad school has a different level of focus and a different level of commitment in the sense of, especially with social work, because we have our classes, we take about five classes a semester, which is not the traditional course load on top of having 960 internship hours within the two years that we have to fulfill on top of, because also sometimes, or a lot of times our internships are unpaid, but yet we have bills to pay. Mm -hmm. So we have to work on top of 
doing an internship on top of taking classes and self-care gets lost in the middle. So for me, it's been a lot about writing down my self-care time. So for me, that is working out. I ran actually ran a half marathon last semester as a form of self-care so I could focus on something like grad school is for me. Yes, Mm -hmm. but also running was just for me. Like it wasn't like for a grade. It wasn't to have a certain time. It wasn't for an accreditation requirement. It was just for me. So outlining those things I can do that like fulfill and fill me up as Sojourner without Sojourner, the grad student has been a boundary within myself. And then also telling people, no, I can't do that because I have this, you know, and being honest, it's not about lying. It's about saying, I have to do this. So this cannot get done. And this will not get done sometimes. And being okay with that, because the way our schedules are set up, they're not set up to be to be balanced and, and recognizing that and understanding that sometimes things won't get done and you'll have to communicate that. But communicating that to your professors, to your group mates, well, we have a lot of group work and social work mm-hmm. um, as well. So being clear on those things has also really helped me keep a clearer mind. And then I also have really great roommates and a good friend group and having that support too. That's pretty, it's pretty beneficial. Yeah. And, you know, I loved that communication was such a big pillar there and just being honest with other people in your life and and honest with yourself about when some things are going to happen and and when some things just can't happen. And, And a lot of the time it's okay as long as we communicate that. And I think sometimes that's hard for folks. Yeah, it's really hard, especially when, you know, grad school values productivity. Yeah. It values always being busy and always doing something. And it honestly, I'm learning now a year in, almost a year and a half in, that I feel guilty sometimes when I'm not doing something. Mm-hmm. And so untraining your mind to say, no, it's okay. I can watch this episode of This Is Us <laughs> and that is perfectly fine. And I don't have to worry about being behind on something because it's going to get done. But giving myself an hour is not going to set me back three days. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because you're worthy of that time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think too, especially when we're in situations like grad school or like a very high pressure job or just kind of swept up in even capitalism, it can be very easy to glorify the productivity and to feel like time for ourselves is only something that we can have if there's extra time left over or that it's a luxury, but it is truly a necessity, especially when we're in those settings and environments. Yes. And capitalism feels a lot heavier when you're working only part time in grad school. And so when you do have free time, you feel like, oh, I should be making money. So I have, you know, more funds to do this and blah, blah, blah. And it's and it's like, no, like, first of all, capitalism is not made for everybody to succeed. So (laughs) there's that. And then also I need time for myself. Like I was asked to fulfill a position, you know, next semester and I had to decline like the money would have been nice. But I'm like, I need more time to myself. Like, I need time to wake up at 9 a.m. and not have to be somewhere. Yeah. Because, you know, once I graduate, that may or may not be, you know, all that I have to do, you know. And so and so definitely even even though it's hard to turn down $15 an hour jobs, like, you know, like while you're in while you're in grad school trying to make everything work, you know, sometimes you just need to say no and, you know, need to 
need to budget a little, little tighter for that period of, and, you know, hope that it all work out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That, that knowing when to say no is hard, but can be very, very rewarding when you say no to the right things for the sake of creating that space for yourself. Yes, because also when you say no, there's going to be a yes coming. Yeah, oh, <laughs> I like that. Whether you realize it or not. Yeah, they'll, like, you may say no to this, but then there's going to something's going to come like, oh, like I said no to that so I can say yes to this. And that's been my experience thus far in grad school. So I'm claiming it. Yes, <laughs> claim it. Continue. I'm going to borrow it. I'm going to claim it too, because that's a really, really good perspective for sure. So how do you navigate feelings of perfectionism? So I was definitely that kid who aimed to be a perfectionist. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So much. And I'm just now wrestling with this because I see it playing out a little bit this semester. Mm -hmm. But I remember being in middle school and high school and Amy, you know, I have to get straight A's. You know, if I get one B, like that's not straight A's. And so it puts like a lot of pressure. It put a lot of pressure on me, especially during that time. And even I remember my parents are like, you know, Sojo, you you got a B. Are you going to be okay? Because it was, I put that much pressure on myself. Yeah. You know, for them, it was, it was like, you know, we want you to succeed, but we don't want you to freak out when you don't get, you know, that 90%. Or that 95%. And so I've gotten a lot better now. I've learned to do my best and manage my time in the way that I can do my best. And then if once it's done, it's out of my hands. Because the constant worrying was also a big part of, of being a perfectionist and wanting to do everything just right because if I do it just right it'll get the recognition that it deserves and then I feel good about myself which is very it's like a very external form of like valuing yourself and I realized in college and undergrad that I couldn't rely on that so once I started doing stuff for me because I really wanted to not because I had to do this in order to get this that's when I saw like the perfectionism box like slowly you know break down and I was able to do things that I was genuinely passionate about and genuinely interested in without the weight of how will this look on a resume how will this look to somebody who doesn't know me like how will they think of me because a lot of my personal perfectionism came from people pleasing yeah it's a connection between those two and understanding you're not going to please everybody that is unrealistic and it just puts more pressure on yourself to be something you're not. I've definitely come into my own in that. It, it's still a process. You know, I don't think it's ever going to stop and say, all right, I've reached to a point where I am exactly everything, but I am everything to me. And that is mm. the important part for me. And so anytime I feel like, you know, middle school Sojo who is trying to, to do everything and be everybody's friend and get all the straight A's creeping up, I remind myself, you know what, that's not the goal anymore. The goal is, you know, being satisfied with what I've done and what I can do and always saying room for growth, but not taking room for growth as criticism either. Ooh, yes, that is a gem because I think I think it can be so easy to confuse the two for sure. I think also 
navigating perfectionism and learning how to overcome or dismantle those feelings is something that's a practice. Like I could relate to so much of of what you said because when I was younger, I definitely did a lot of similar things in my school years. And, And those aren't things that just go away, like lifelong practices and beliefs don't go away overnight. But it's something that we can kind of work at every day and be compassionate with ourselves for every day. Yes, because even part of it, you know, even though perfectionism wasn't healthy for me, it made me want to achieve goals. It doesn't mean I didn't want to do that. It's just the way I was going about it wasn't the way that worked for me. Because being in grad school, obviously, it takes a special brand of person to want to go through two years of intense schooling. So it gave me those skills to know I can do something, but now I'm able to do it in a healthier way that's more manageable, doesn't feel I'm overwhelmed all the time, that I'm able to take breaks and give myself breaks and give myself that space to decompress and not always worry about being perfect. Ooh, you are dropping gems right now. I love it. No, but I think that that's such an important distinction to make and, and is a very, very important mindset to have because I know that the quest for perfection yeah. is something that impacts a lot of us. Yeah. And it's just not sustainable. No, <laughs> it's, just, it's not. Especially not in grad school. Like being perfect and everything is not sustainable. And this is putting extra stress and pressure on yourself to want to sustain something that by design is not meant to to be something that lasts forever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So along those same lines, it is, it's time for my favorite question, right? Talking about (laughs) perfectionism and balance. And that is, what does being a balanced Black girl mean to you? I've been thinking about this question (laughs) because I knew it was coming. Um, (laughs) To me, I think being a balanced Black girl means I can show up as me as like entirely me in all spaces and that may be slightly idealistic because we know being a black woman we may not be readily accepted in in all spaces but I think having that balance understanding that if I show up as who I am as the sojourner who is ready to take on anything and is willing to to grow and also willing to show off where she knows what she's talking about and also having that space to be vulnerable is what it means to be a balanced Black girl and being able to show that to myself first and then being comfortable enough to show that to other people is really what I think it means to me and understanding that, you know, sometimes it may not work out in every space, but at the end of the day, if I know I showed up the way that I feel like I know I am, then that's all I can do. The rest is up to the powers that be who have led me, who led me this far. They haven't led me astray. So as long as I know that I'm, I'm being the best me I can be, then I think I've achieved balanced Black girl status. Oh, <laughs> uh, I love it. That is like mic drop. That is really, really beautiful. And I think showing up as entirely ourselves and and being in that authenticity is something that, again, kind of like overcoming perfectionism is like a lifelong practice. It's not easy. It's not easy for us. We know that we're not always appreciated in all spaces, but just really thriving and trying to be our fullest selves in any situation is, I think, a really beautiful state of being. 
it's you, it's who you are. And if you're true to who you are, I think stuff will align. Like we mentioned earlier, like alignment is everything. And even if we don't realize it in that moment, you know, something's happening. Yeah. Something's brewing and we may not see it today or time we go to sleep. But, you know, later down the line, you're like, oh, that's what that's what that means. That's why I went through that. And that's why that did work for me or why it didn't work for me. Yes, exactly. Ugh, I love it. Sojourner, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really, really appreciated all of the personal anecdotes you shared, all of the helpful tips and tricks. Where can our audience keep in touch with you to learn more? Yeah, so I am pretty much all over social media. <laughs> Twitter, I'm at Sojourneys. On Instagram, I'm at The Sojourneys. And then I have a Facebook page also called Sojourneys where you can follow up with my travels. Amazing. We will also have all of those linked in the show notes so that our audience can follow along and keep in touch with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me.